0: Well, good morning, I was just uh, looking around the room trying to, sorry, figure out who was in here and see if we had any young people, but anyway, I did send out a, an email, you may or may not have received that or seen it, but just a disclaimer about today's sermon and also next week's, and who knows, maybe the week after, you know how I am, but... Um, but the intention is to spend two Sundays in this text in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. And the matter is maybe a little more mature than we normally deal with, but the Bible addresses these things. It's not the first time when Thomas went through the book of Proverbs. We, uh, those things are addressed there. They're addressed in the same subject. The subject of sex is addressed in multiple places in the Scripture. So, just wanted to give all of the uh, parents a heads up concerning that. I would also just add to the... Uh, announcements is that the books for the next piece of our growth group study that will begin in April are in. Uh, they're available. There's still, I believe, about maybe 40. I think 30 were picked up last Sunday, and there's, we ordered 70, pre-ordered 70. They're five bucks a piece, so if you would like to attend the growth group, or even if you don't, if you just want the book, but if you'd like to attend the growth group, uh, you'll need the book, and so we would ask you to make sure you pick that up soon. It's first come, first serve, so once the 70 are out, we will not be ordering any more. You would just have to get the book at that point on your own. All right. Are you ready? I don't feel ready. I don't know if it's the subject matter or if it's just a loss of an hour of sleep. I'm not sure. But um, when I don't know what to do, I, or even when I do know what to do, I, I like to go to prayer. <laughs> And uh, find my, my confidence there, so let's do that right now. Father in heaven, I ask that you would uh, work in us by your spirit through your word. And just ask that, uh, Father, you would help me to honor you in all of these things. Father, might I leave out what should be left out, and when I include what you would want me to include, and empower me now as your servant, to bring your beautiful people, your sheep, your word. I ask us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I titled uh, the sermon Purity in the Midst of Perversion. Purity in the Midst of Perversion. And just to make sure that we're thinking about the same things and on the same page, I thought I would just define is the way I'm using those words to find them for you. Purity, uh, basic definition, would be freedom from contamination. Okay? Freedom from contamination. So pure water, you might think of. But also, it is used to speak of freedom from immorality, especially of a sexual nature. And that's uh, my intent in using that word, purity. Freedom from immorality, especially of a sexual nature. In the midst of, that just phrase means in the middle of or surrounded by, all right? Surrounded by. And finally, perversion. Perversion. The definition of perversion is the alteration of something from its original course, meaning or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. Intended actually a great definition, fits perfectly concerning the subject matter. I'm going to read it to you again. Perversion, the alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. Also, under that uh, word, you might find the definition of this, sexual behavior or desire that is considered abnormal or unacceptable. Of course, that begs the question, who defines what is unacceptable? Great, yeah, that is the right answer. But often is the case in our society, it is not God for individuals. that defines what is acceptable or not acceptable or even abnormal, abnormal uh, concerning sexual behavior. Rather, it is lost, blind sinners. So God determines what is acceptable concerning these things. And similar to the Christians in the first century uh, who lived in the city of Thessalonica, remember this letter is addressed to them, these new believers that are there, brand new believers. Similar to them, um, we are surrounded by perversion when it comes to sex. But God calls us and he has been calling his people ever since he's been calling them to himself. He calls them to purity, to purity. I was just thinking about the state of our culture. And you you know these things, I'm sure, as well, but we are indeed surrounded by uh, perversion. And maybe, you know, the first thing when you hear that is you think of, you know, the push towards normalizing homosexuality. Let me just say that that's included in the subject matter of sexual immorality. That is certainly immorality. Um, But there's more to that than just that. So perversion, since it's a, a departure from the original course or meaning or state of things, from what they were intended to be, Perversion in this area includes fornication. Includes adultery. And our culture, the only way I could define it is really now, uh, it seems to be, the way they refer to it is is a hookup culture. A hookup culture. Um, As someone said, I heard someone say the other day, um, you know, friends with benefits. These kind of phrases are are the kind of phrases that are used, uh, hopefully not, not by you as Christians, but they are certainly used uh, by the unbelieving world regularly. And Of course, friends with benefits means those who you also casually have sex with. We live in a, a, a culture of casual sex. Uh, hopefully none of you have uh, the app called Tinder on your phone. But, you know, just in trying to do a little research which i feel w- strange about even doing and almost feel like you have to take a shower afterwards but in doing some research concerning tinder which is a very popular app and it's just one among many beloved but it is designed to uh, meet up with people for the purpose of having sex multiple people and if you you know the swipe right swipe left stuff you you strictly are seeing a picture of a person and the ones you are attracted to, you know, I don't know exactly how it works. I don't have it, but you get rid of them, the ones you like, you swipe a certain other direction, then you notify them and you look to hook up sexually. This is our culture that we're living in. Our culture talks about safe sex. You know, they want to make sure that our schools, you know, our our kids are instructed in in having safe sex. That in and of itself is a ridiculous statement because uh, there is no safe sex outside of the sex that God has told us that we are allowed to have, which is within the covenant of marriage, a man and a woman committed to one another. Uh, Of course, they are referring strictly to the prevention of uh, sexual diseases and, I guess, uh, pregnancy when they use the term safe sex, but, but that is such a sad thing that people are accepting as a real thing. Oh, I'm practicing safe sex. You're not. You are destroying yourself and others. You're hurting them. There's nothing safe about it if it's outside the bounds of marriage. Right, read a recent article. Um, Jennifer Lawrence, anybody know who she is? Actress. You know who she is? Of course you do, because, well, I shouldn't assume. How do you know who she is? She plays the Games. Okay, thank you, yes. She plays that person. I can't remember her name. I saw The Hunger Games. She, she, she plays in The Hunger Games, but she's also in many other movies, including a current one she's a Russian spy in or something along those lines. But she recently revealed, again, this is just reflective of our culture, that she hasn't had sex in a very long time. Why? Because she's committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and is living in purity and waiting for that day that she'll become married to someone and then express those feelings uh, with him? Nope. It's because she's afraid of uh, sexually transmitted diseases, which is reasonable, but this article is so odd, or at least it should be considered odd when you, when, I, uh, when you think about it. You know, they point out that uh, S, sexually transmitted diseases, or infections as they call them, including chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, well, they still pose a major risk to sexually active Americans, despise all we know about safer sex. In fact, in 2016, I'm just reading from the article, the number of cases of these three diseases climbed to over 2 million. So it's in one year. The highest ever, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But then the article, and this is, again, just, you know, this goes right along with where we are uh, as a culture. It says, but is self-imposed celibacy really the way to go? It's, it's, it's questioning Jennifer Lawrence's decision. Not, you know, is that, is that really a good idea? Article goes on to say that, you know, she's, think about it, she's missing out on all the pleasure of it. And it has health benefits. (laughs) Goes on to say, as long as you're safe about it, basically, you should hook up. Of course, you know, they, they make sure to say at the end, of course, abstaining is the only way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases entirely. I mean, yeah. Another recent article... You know what keeps people off of uh, The Bachelor? The primary reason they don't get to get on to the, that show about, you know, people getting together to find love, and you got one bachelor and, I don't know, 26, 30 women, something like that, I and mean, they're going to work through them all to find love. Do you know what keeps them off of the show? They fail the test for sexually transmitted diseases. Now, I wonder. Why would they be taking that test? Well, because, as maybe you know or don't know, at the end of the show, there's a fantasy suite. And the remaining survivors of this show, which could be two or three women, have the opportunity now to sleep with this man, so he can determine better yet whether or not this is the right one. I believe, and I'm only bringing all this up because I believe that we are in danger of becoming desensitized to the perversion if we have not already. In other words, it doesn't shock us anymore. When it should, it doesn't shock us. What is abnormal to God has become normal to us. And that's problematic for us. I'm just thinking about the show Friends. The show Friends, very, very popular show. I've watched it, so I'll just give you that disclaimer right now. Uh, yeah, okay, thank you. Oh, good, I'm glad you've never watched it. I'm glad. Um, but I have. I've watched it. I know, I know many people do. But I saw an article about it, and it just kind of, to prove my point how maybe desensitized we are to such things, you know, because you're, you know, you're looking for something, you want to laugh, you're looking for something funny, you hear this is funny. Okay, all right, funny. Hmm. The article read that most television sitcoms are obsessed with sex. That is true. That is true. But one show has truly broken the barrier of sexual conquest by the ensemble, the, you know, the actors. Friends, along with... And this should be obvious, Sex in the City, another very popular show. Never watched that. I've never watched that, Steve. Okay. The title alone, I said, I can't do it. I can't watch it. Uh, But Friends sounds so nice, doesn't it? (laughs) Friends, along with Sex in the City. Friends was cited in a 2008 study published in the American Journal of Pediatrics for, quote, glamorizing sex while hardly mentioning its downsides, such as sexually transmitted diseases. The article says, but how much sex have the friends actually had? Ten seasons. There's six characters Ross, Rachel, Joey, Chandler, Monica, and Phoebe. Yeah. Whatever, it doesn't matter. There's six of them. How much how much sex have they had? in immoral sex? How much do you think? Eighty-five different people. They the person went through, they watched Every piece of it, they read the transcripts, and they even, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but they number, you know, they give the number to each particular person. They're all involved. You know, how many each one had? 85 different people, and those are just the people that actually were brought onto the show, not the one, other ones that they might talk about. So as you're watching 10 Seasons of Friends, 85 different encounters, Chris last week Chris was up here and he was talking about how he likes country music. Hi Chris over there and I like country music too but he was you know saying hey but I can't listen to all of it and some of it is just so far out there and basically it's you know saying things that are absolutely not true and he said you know keep your you got to maintain your theology and your belief systems when you're listening to things, watching things, certainly. And some things, he says, I just won't even listen to it. And I would imagine be true in this area as well, just some things we can't even watch. But we've got to hold on to our theology in the midst of being surrounded by a constant flood of perversion. And it presents itself in a way that, you know, where we can swallow it a little bit easier. And so we have. We swallow it. I was just thinking about even our presidents. Right, so this is the highest office in our land. It should be one of honor and respect. Yeah? But I could just go back. I'll just go back to JFK. I was not, I did not grow up under JFK my parents did, but as far as I understand, he was highly esteemed by many. The country mourned when he was assassinated. But he was a serial adulterer. One woman after another he had while in office. Maybe it wasn't as uh, blown out or made you know, available to everyone at the time because the media didn't have the kind of the input and access that they have now, I don't know. But it's not just him, even more recent, Clinton. The highest office in the land. And we have to listen and hear about a discussion about what he did and And how about Trump? You know, I know he's just been accused, but it's so sickening to me. That that's what we have to hear about. That he's been accused of sleeping with a porn star while he was married, while he, you know, with the wife he has now. And again, those are accusations. But you know, I, I think that the reason the story is getting legs is because we're probably thinking, yeah, it probably happened. It's likely, right? Just because of his past and who he is. Making matters worse, beloved, and this is all by way of introduction, so... but Making matters worse is what should have a purifying influence on our culture, the church. The church has been compromised by bad theology. So this is a little different from the first century, okay, because in the first century... The church entered into a pagan society, and there was clear lines of separation. This is the church, this is what the church believes, these are the ethics of the believer, and they were stepping into a a moral society, and you could see the distinctions, right? 2,000 years later, here's the church, but it's not as distinct anymore, It's not as distinct in its ethics. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons would be bad theology, bad understanding of what the Bible teaches. And one of those would be, he's my savior, but he's not my Lord teaching. As if that was an option, which is prevalent among the churches. The idea is that, He saved me from hell, but that's one step. But I haven't yet, you know, made a commitment to him as my Lord, which means I would follow him in all that he said. But I'm still saved. And maybe at some point I'll make that more deeper commitment to him and then follow him. But for now, I'm going to live my life, but I know that I have fire insurance in the end. Just recently because I like to torture myself, I turned on TBN. You go, why do you do that? Because I want to know what the enemy's doing. That's why. I want to know what his strategies are, because you'll find him there. He's there. Not everything on TBN is terrible. Most of it is. Most of it is. And I saw a blast from the past, Montel Jordan. You, You go, who's that? Well, he is now, he is now a worship pastor at a mega church in Atlanta. But if you don't know him, and this may not help either, he's the one who did the song, This Is How We Do It. And it was a popular song for me uh, growing up. Yeah, thank you. A lot of feedback from you this morning. I appreciate it. Uh... But during the interview, they were talking to him, and he said that even in the making of that song, and I'm not going to give you the lyrics of the song, but if you read it, you would know it's not anywhere near a Christian song. It's anti-Christian. It's worldly. He's expressing worldly values, ungodly even, okay? But he says that even in the making of that song and during that time, he was a Christian. That's really confusing, and he explained himself, because now, obviously, he's a pastor. He's, he's now repented of that stage of his life. But he says, you know, and he's the one who said, he goes, you know, I was good with him being my Savior, but I, I wasn't ready to accept him as my Lord yet, as I have now. So that kind of thinking, then, generates a a bunch of folks who are professing faith in Christ and saying they are Christian, and then the world's looking at that, yet they continue to live just as they always lived. And they're just thinking, yeah, at some point I'll, I'll get more serious about this Christian thing. But they identify as Christians because they prayed a prayer and walked an aisle and raised their hand and they said, you know, and accepted him as their savior. You know, there's no, you don't accept him as just savior and leave the Lord part out. You come to him as he is. He is Lord, right? That's the truth. If you don't come to him as Lord, you haven't come to him. Not really, you haven't come to him. you come to someone else, some other Jesus. The Jesus that says, sure, I'll save you. And whenever you want to get around to following me, I'm good with that. That's not Jesus. That's not the one of the Bible. I mean, we just read it in the, Eric read it this morning, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The one who professes to be a Christian, beloved, but goes on living in a moral life, and there's a lot of them, and I'm not talking about someone who is fighting the fight and struggling with sin and does fail. That is true of true believers. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who's just going on living in a moral life. There's no other distinction between them and the world other than the fact that they say they're Christian or they may even attend a service occasionally or maybe frequently on Sunday. But other than that, there's no distinctions. They live as the world lives. Those people have no reason to say or believe they are Christian. And I wish they wouldn't. Because then it confuses everyone else as to how they are to live, or there's no conviction even. Yeah, you're a Christian, and hes yeah, he's shacked up. They're shacked up together. They're Christian. I guess it's OK. God must be good with it. He's actually not good with it Matthew 7:21, you know this passage: "Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven." but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How much? I don't know how that can be any more clear. Just look. Who's the one that will enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, beloved, it doesn't say because they earn their way into heaven by doing my Father's will. It's not that. He's saying, listen, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, well, that's the believer. That's the, that's the one who's been born again. That's the one who's become a new crea- creature in Christ. That's the one. So those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven, those are the ones that will enter into heaven. Those are the children of God. But there's lots of folks walking around saying, Lord, Lord, you know, I know you. He says, yeah, they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who will, Because they're not doing the Father's will. They don't care about the Father's will. They're still doing their own thing. It goes on. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? They're making claims that there's a lot of religious activity, a lot of things that they're doing. Whether they're true or not, we don't know, but they're making those claims. Hey, we were doing things for you. Well, look, at the, look what the Lord says. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. If I knew you, you would do the Father's will. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Another translation says, you evildoers. Another translation says, you lawbreakers. And you remember when we went, if you were here, and if not, go back and listen to the series on 1 John that we did a long time ago. But in 1 John 3, again, very clear. Verses 4 through 10, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, Jesus, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning unrepentantly, unrelentingly, just continuing willfully in his sin. Why? Because he's been born of God. I don't, it can't get any clearer. And yet, people still think wrongly about this issue. And I wish they, I, for the glory of God and the honor of the church, I wish they would quit, just stop and recognize they're not born again and repent and come to the Lord and cast themselves before him and give their lives to him for real. Because then there would be real change. And the church would be purified and have a greater impact on this lost world. Well, beloved, in our text today, Paul makes a transition now in his letter to the Christians in Thessalonica. He begins the word, verse 1, with finally, but it's it's not a conclusion. It would probably be better translated, and now. It's just a way of transitioning. And he begins to address, via instructions and exhortations, some specific topics. So we'll read all the verses right now, and we won't get very far, of course. But let's look at it. And, And honestly, just try not to think of anything else. Just hear the words, right? Because I could just read this. Honestly, that is a, that's going to be enough even for this morning because it's not hard to understand. It's really not hard to understand. So let your ears hear it. Put everything else out of your mind and hear the word of God. Hear him speak to you this morning right now. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So the first topic. As Paul transitions from speaking about what occurred there in Thessalonica and remembering them and talking about the gospel and really giving a defense of his ministry there and his co-workers because they were being attacked and slandered, he now, he now begins to exhort and instruct the church. And what is, what is the first topic that he brings up? It is the topic of Sex. And clearly, it makes sense in light of the culture of the first century, which we'll look at a little bit, which has similarities, certainly, with 21st century culture. One writer says, it's not surprising that the apostle begins with sex, not only because it is the most overbearing of all our human urges, looks to dominate us, but also because of the sexual laxity, even promiscuity, of the Greco-Roman world, the world that existed at that time. Besides, he was writing from Corinth to Thessalonica. Corinth, as you may or may not know, was very immoral, known for its immorality. You would go there to engage in immorality. So he's writing from Corinth, this letter, to Thessalonica. And both cities, both, not just Corinth, were famed for their immorality. In Corinth, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex and beauty, whom the Romans identified with Venus, sent her servants out as prostitutes to roam the streets by night. Thessalonica, on the other hand, was particularly associated with the worship of deities, called, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Kabiri, in whose rites gross immorality was promoted under the name of Religion. Another writer contributing more to our understanding of that culture says this, further contributing to the sexually permissive environment in Thessalonica was the influence, as we were just talking about, of the mystery religions that advocated ritual prostitution. They taught that if a follower engaged with a temple prostitute, he would be communing transcendentally with the deity, connected to the deity through this sexual encounter with this prostitute who represented the God. Thus, people did not consider fornication and adultery illegal or immoral. So for us, right, we just, we, I think we still say adultery is immoral. I mean, I'm talking about not as Christians, but as a culture. Um, I mean, it depends, I guess, who you're talking to, but because there are open marriages now, and the idea of having you know, multiple partners, and that's you know even suggested to be a good thing, so they wouldn't think it's immoral. But generally speaking, I still think people say adultery is wrong, but as far as fornication goes, for the most part, people say no. Right? That's kind of our culture. But there, people did not consider fornication and adultery illegal or moral, either one. The idolatrous religions actually condoned them. Right? For the Thessalonians, then, sexual sin was more customary and more tolerated than it is even by today's standards, and that's saying something. That's saying something. So we, I know it's, you know, we talk about the perversion of our culture, and it is perverted for sure, but even to a greater degree, because immoral sex then was now tied to worship, to worship. So, you, you know, you would draw closer to your God through sexual activity, which is all of it immoral and wrong, according to the one true God that exists. <laughs> And, you know, we're not so far removed. We've had modern-day cults, when you've studied them, there almost always is a sexual component uh, connected to the leaders of those cults that you must engage in immorality with him or her or each other to achieve a higher level of worship or spiritual enlightenment or such. There's always that component, seems to be, in cults, even modern-day cults. One uh, writer just points out that the cities of Greece, Asia Minor, and Egypt, all of them have become centers of the wildest corruption. And there has probably never been a period when vice was more extravagant or uncontrolled than it was under the Caesars that were uh, ruling at that time, or had ruled during that period of history, Greco-Roman history. Another writer points out that adultery was a common subject of poetry. Poetry. See, I, I, I had this crazy idea poetry was supposed to be beautiful, you know, and express wonderful things, but they would, they thought it was beautiful, adultery was beautiful, and they would write about it in their poetry, and all the arts, uh, the writer says, were employed to make it a pleasing and seductive practice. It was, it was wonderful. Now, there's no reason, as we're, thinking about the culture at that time, and we're thinking about now Paul writing to them, and, and the first thing he wants to address is the issue of sexual morality. There's no reason to think that Paul is doing that because the Thessalonians, the believers in Thessalonica, were sinning in that area at that time. Uh, there's no doubt that they were sinning previously, but now having been converted and, and coming to Christ... There was a change in their behavior, and, and I say that because Paul does not uh, rebuke them here. He doesn't specifically rebuke them or call anything out in particular, as he did with the church of Corinth, where there was still, uh, there was problems, there was some sexual immorality going on among believers, Okay. Beyond that, as we just read, he recognizes their faithfulness in living lives pleasing to God as they were instructed to do. And he says, just as you are doing, right? Just as you are doing. So he, he recognizes that they are living, uh, you know, for the most part, lives pleasing to God. They're, they're, they're pursuing those things that they were instructed in. But he does ask and urge them to continue to make progress, to make more and more strides in complying with the divine instructions they were originally given uh, by the Apostle Paul and his co-workers. And part of those original instructions, you know, after coming to the Lord, they say, well, how are we to live? This is how the Lord would have you to live, as followers of Jesus Christ, as children of God. Part of those instructions included the matter of sex. That is what was and what was not pleasing to God when it came to his redeemed children and their sexual behavior. They had to be instructed in those things. And, um, and they certainly you know, would have needed that instruction because the culture was, there was no, it was entirely immoral in this area. One writer says, the warning was timely since many of the readers until a few months before had lived by the low moral standards prevailing in the pagan world around them. Paul well knew that he could not assume that their conversion would automatically undo the moral habits of a lifetime. Remember, the the gospel came into a pagan culture. These are adults. They have been living this way for a decent period of time. They have developed habits and patterns. So... He wants to keep reinforcing. If you've done something for a long time in a particular way, and now you're to break with it, and you are, he wants to make sure they're staying the course and that they continue down the right path and they don't slide back. He was aware that strong temptations to licentiousness constantly assailed them, so their culture was, they saw it all the time. And they used to be involved in these things, there's no doubt. It was part of their worship. So constant admonitions and urgent warnings were always needed. And as the writer says, the New Testament letters repeatedly touch upon the subject. And it may well be that Timothy, remember Timothy's come back, he's reported, he was sent there to find out how are they doing, are they staying the course, are they continuing to believe in the gospel and follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Timothy maybe come back and reported that some of the members may have been finding it difficult to maintain the moral standard that the missionaries had taught. doesn't mean that they were violating those standards, but maybe they were struggling, right? And so Paul comes in and reinforces. It's the same for us. We need to continually be reinforced in these things. Even if you're staying the course right now, even if you're not involved in sexual immorality, you need to hear it again and again because you're surrounded by it. And it, is possible that you can get caught up in it if you're not careful, if you're not cautious, if you're not continuing to remind yourselves of the truths of God's word. So in verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. That is, the Lord Jesus was the source of and authority behind their instructions. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sex. Nothing. I know it's heavy, but I have to lighten it up every once in a while. So there's no command in the scriptures, right? To completely abstain from sex. Glory be to God. Because it is a beautiful and wonderful gift if exercised, as God would have us to exercise it, in bounds of marriage, one man, one woman. It, listen, God designed it, okay? So sex is not evil. It is a good gift of God, but like many good gifts of God, sin looks to pervert it, which is exactly what's going on. And we are sinners, and so we, our tendency is, our bent is to pervert that very good thing that God has given us to use it in a way that he does not want us to use it. So no, the command is that you abstain from sexual immorality. So just to make sure you're paying attention, what is the will or desire of God for his people? Their sanctification. Yeah, their sanctification, which he will then elaborate further because he's thinking specifically now of this category. Your sanctification includes that you abstain from sexual immorality. But just to pause, what is God's will for his people? Say it again. Your sanctification, right? Your sanctification. So what is that? Well, we've talked about it many times, but here's just another good definition of what Paul's referring to here. the process of being made holy or becoming more and more in character and conduct that which God desires us to be. Read again. It is the process of being made holy, becoming more and more in character and conduct that which God desires us to be. Who cares about what God desires us to be? Huh? Well, yes, God cares about what God desires to be for sure. Who else? Well, Christians should, yeah, that's what I would anticipate or expect, That Christians would care about what God desires them to be, right? If they love God, then they will care, or loving God. If they're loving God, they will care about what it is that he desires. What does he want? It's like, you know, my wife. I love my wife, right? So I care about the things that she cares about or the things she desires or wants. I care about those things. Now, if I didn't care about her, and you see that in a lot of relationships where they don't care about each other, they, I don't even care. I don't even, why are you talking? I'm not listening, right? I'm just saying, if you don't, it's a, it's a, it's a demonstration of, I don't, you know, I care about me. I don't care about you. And it's, it shows up in the fact that, you know, you want to do this, you want to do that, whatever, Right? With God, though, and his children, the expectation is that because you've been transformed and changed and given a new heart, that you now love God, and as an expression of that love, you then look to him and say, God, what would you have me to do? What do you desire for me? I care about what you care about. Now, our love can grow cold, as we've been reading in Love or Die, right? Things impacted sin, unconfessed sin, and life, and our old man, and all that stuff works in to impact our love for God. But that should be, that should be an immediate indicator to you. Listen, I'm living, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm playing with sexual immorality. Well, either you don't know it's sexual immorality, I guess. Maybe you don't know, and now you're finding out that these things are wrong, right? Or you don't really care. And if you don't really care, then, you know, either you're not a believer at all or your love has grown cold for your God. Something's wrong. You've got something wrong going on in your heart. Because if you, if you love him, then you will care. So this is his will for you. This is what I desire for you. This is what I command of you. This is what I want of you. Your sanctification you becoming more and more separated from sin and connected more and more with the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's what i want for you and by the way who defines what sin is yeah god does and and who defines what righteousness is god does So according to verse 3, our sanctification, our becoming more and more in character and conduct, that which God desires us to be, as I just said, includes and requires that we abstain from sexual immorality. Now, abstain. Beloved, let me point out the obvious. Abstinence is not moderation. It's not you know, that you moderate your sexual immorality. That's my will for you. That's how you'll become more holy in your conduct and character. You'll become more like me if you just moderate it, you know? Just tone it down a little bit. You know, not so frequent. No. When one abstains from voting, right, they don't vote, okay? Right, the... Abstain. That means they didn't. They didn't mark. There's no participation in the vote. It's the same. The call to abstain from sexual immorality is you don't participate in any way at all. You're not part of it at all. Anything that would be defined as sexual immorality. We are not to dabble in evil, but stay away from it. You know, I, there's a passage in Ephesians 5 3, and I like the way the NIV translates it to try to communicate the force, but there, the Apostle Paul writes this, but among you, that you are believers, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint, or any kind of impurity, or of greed, because why? These are improper for God's holy people. Set apart people, set apart for him and his service in devotion to him. But what is sexual morality? I know, We'll close. We're going to have to wrap up early. What is sexual immorality? And we'll just answer that question, and then I'll make a few closing comments. And we'll pick back up in verse 4 next week. What is sexual immorality? Well, one writer defines it this way. Any and every form of sexual practice that lies outside the circle of God's revealed will. That's it. Honestly. God determines these things, beloved. He determines what is and what isn't. Sexual immorality. What is and what isn't, you know, what is permitted and what is not permitted, what is prohibited. The creator determines, and he gets to determine how his creation is to live. And his will, his will concerning these things has been revealed. He doesn't keep it a secret. You know, how we are to function in this area is not part of his secret will, which does exist. There are some things we don't know that he is doing and we are not to know. But in these matters, not only has he made it known, but he's made it clear. You know, you don't have to be confused about this. And yet there seems to be confusion, but there's no need to be confused. It's clear. The word that's used here for sexual immorality, it was used frequently in Judeo-Christian literature. It could refer to premarital or extramarital intercourse, prostitution, incest, or any other type of sexual impropriety. One writer just defines it this way. It includes every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. Unlawful sexual intercourse. But, just to be clear, not what our culture or government says is unlawful. Because we've changed on that now, right? But rather, what God says is unlawful or forbidden or prohibited. God sets the standard. So we have to keep looking to Him, keep our eyes fixed on Him. I don't care what the government, ultimately, I don't care. I mean, I care, but I would prefer them to say righteous things and do righteous things. But they are a human government, they are not divine but in the end, my morality is not based on what's lawful for me by the government standard is yours, right? Because we're, we've been called of God, called to answer to him, called to look to him for how we are to function and what our conduct is to be in this world. Not to the government, not to our culture, not to our friends or communities, Another way we could define sexual immorality, beloved, is engaging in sex with someone other than your spouse, and now I have to say, because of our culture, opposite sex spouse, and maybe I have to further say, born that way, opposite sex spouse, and the fact that I have to do all that just weighs on me. So let me just close with this. I have so much more to say, and out of time, as usual. I just wanted to... A, you have enough already that you can respond to, you know? And you're thinking, well, I'm not involved in sexual immorality. Fantastic. Praise God, you know? Praise God. But you may be a parent or a grandparent, and I just look at our young people here and... You know, have great concerns in the world that they're growing up in. And you need, you need to be communicating to them the truths of Scripture, not what you're swallowing in the culture, and they are swallowing too. You know, you don't, you don't do your kids any favors as they grow older by telling them, now listen, you know. If you do have sex, do you know about how to protect yourself? I mean, I understand why parents do that. I understand that you know, that's the conversation they end up having because they're afraid that of an unwanted you know, pregnancy or the issue of venereal diseases and so on and so forth. But that is not God's will for their lives that they have safe sex. God's will is that they abstain from sexual immorality, which means they will not have sex until they're married to an opposite sex person. That that is God's will. So telling them you know, just but just in case. That's not what we find in the scriptures. You know, you might blow it, I know. Listen, they're getting plenty of that advice from everyone else. What they need to hear is the truth of God's Word. That's not God's will for you. I'll have more to say about that even next time, too, as we come together. But but yeah, fantastic. You're not involved in sexual morality. And beyond that, you may not have children or grandchildren to influence, and you're not involved, but you live in a culture where it's prevalent, and you may be tempted on a regular basis. What is God's will for your life, Christian? And if you are involved in sexual immorality right now, how should you respond? You know, just blow it off? You know, I'll just come back next week? Well, I'm going to be talking about it again next week. So just don't come back. I don't know. You need to repent. You need to repent for your own... I mean, when we get into the passage, did you notice Did you notice the warning at, at the, towards the end? And the Lord is an avenger in all of these things? That's heavy, beloved. That's really heavy. You need to repent. You know, I was, I was, and in, in I'll close with this. Why, why do folks fail to comply with God's clear reveal, clearly revealed will? Why? Even after they know it, all right? So let's remove that one. Well, they don't know. You know, maybe they don't know. So for the pagans, they didn't know, and that's why they needed to be informed. Now, we come from a, a Christian culture, so there's, it's, you know, it's diminishing quickly. Uh, a Judeo-Christian ethic, that's our country was founded on it and, you know, has been influenced by it. Even our laws influenced by it. So, you know, there's a sense that we know, but maybe you could become a Christian and not know. You could think fornication is okay because that's really the culture's at that place now. It's totally okay. So you need to be informed. Okay, this is how God would have you to live. These, this is what his will is for you. And so now you're informed. So let's assume that. You're informed. So then why would you, why would you fail to comply with it? Well, it's like anything else, right? It's either one or two things. You're not his child. So you, don't, you, you haven't been transformed. You haven't been changed. You've been told what God's will is, but you really don't care. You're going through the motions, but there's no internal change in your heart. You don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So you just do what you've always done. So that could be, that could be one. And in that case, you need, to be, you need to get born again. You need to get saved. Because what you face is an eternal damnation if you were to die. That's where you are, and that would be an indication to you, look, I, don't even, I really don't care about these things. I continue in them. That should be a warning. Hey, hello, you're not a follower of Christ. All right? But you may be saved, and you may have failed in this area, or maybe you're right now failing, right now in this area. You may be saved. Certainly, people who are saved, who are believers in Christ, commit adultery, fornicate. Huh? They do. They come from an old way of life. They have struggles. The culture around them is continually, you know, pushing it, feeding it. My goodness. And I'm going to tell you what I tell everyone, regardless of what the sin is. It's going to be the same with this one. You know, there is a a failure on our parts to ultimately believe that God is indeed Good and all wise, there's a failure at some level in that individual. Because basically what you're saying is, you know, yeah, I know he gave that command, but, you know, I mean, this, I mean, this, it, you know, everything's right here. It feels so right, and it feels like I should do it. I mean, after all, shouldn't I follow my heart? Maybe, maybe God is just trying to prevent me from doing something that is actually good or I mean after all there's physical benefits and blah 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 and you know I need this and you know I love this individual or whatever but there's a there's basically a lack of faith in the reality of who God is it's a denial really of who he is We say God is good all the time, and generally, you know, I think we, you know, make that statement around when great things are, you know, happening or something, but God is good all the time, which includes when he gave that instruction, he was good. He was good when he gave it, because God knows what is good and what is not, what ultimately will be a benefit to his people, and what will destroy them, right? And so, Anytime we engage, I don't care if it's lying or cheating or sexual immorality, it's the same thing going on in our heads. We deny the goodness of God. We deny many other things about him too, like just how holy he is and just how serious he is about sin. Maybe he's not as serious as he said. But we right away deny his goodness. We deny his wisdom. He's all wise. Maybe not. Maybe he's not. That's kind of what's going on. We need to repent of those things. God is good. So when he gives this command, he knows the devastation that occurs in people's lives when they engage in a casual sex kind of culture. When When they give themselves to that, it is destructive. It will ruin them. He knows. And it, It dishonors him. It does not reflect well on who he is and who his children are to be. It brings shame to him and to his church. He is good. None of those things are good. Shame and destruction and ruin. But we don't believe it. Ultimately, we don't. Otherwise, why would we do it? So we have to, at that moment, in our heart, recognize I'm buying into a lie. I'm buying into a lie. The world is lying. My flesh, I can feel it lying right now. My heart is lying. That's why I die every time I hear, follow your heart. God, please take that phrase out of our culture, follow your heart. Just follow, you know, just go where your heart goes. Oh my goodness, right into ruin. Go where God goes. Go where he tells you to go and see the blessing that will come upon your life. He is good, beloved. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And uh, Father, help us. Help us to actually hear it, to meditate on it, to think on it. And Father, may your spirit convict us If anyone in here naming the name of Christ and yet involved in sexual sin, Father, I pray that your Spirit would work in them right now. Bring them to a place of repentance, true repentance, genuine repentance, that they would confess their sin to you and to the ones that they are harming by their acts. That they would turn from it, that they would... They would cry out to you for mercy and forgiveness, which they will find in Jesus Christ. And then by your strength and by your spirit, begin to walk in the path that you would have for them. Father, for those that are here that don't even, they come, and I'm glad that they're here, but they don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and so they may be involved in these kind of things. Father, I I pray that you would work in their hearts as well, that they would see the error of their ways but realize that they're never going to be able to break from that corruption if they don't first turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be your will for them, that they would bow their hearts and their knees to him, cry out to him, call out to him to be saved, that they might be made new creatures in Christ, that they might be given the strength and power and wisdom that they need to walk as you would have them to walk. For their good! For their good, that they might see you in all of your glory, behold you as you are, you are holy, you are righteous, you are good in all of these things. You are not an ogre, you are not evil. You do not look to harm us, but you love us. And so your instructions are for us, for our good and your glory. Lord, help us not to forget that when sin comes a lion. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.